It's a delight of fantastic proportion, isn't it, that we've been permitted the marvelous honor of assembling this afternoon for the purpose that we have. I think as Gary mentioned earlier, certainly after those rather strong storms of yesterday, we're blessed with a peaceful sunshine this afternoon. Our God is certainly so good to us. He gives us those things that we need, and sadly enough, and on occasion, we appreciate that there are tempests and difficulties like those storms of yesterday, but we continue to be thankful that no loss of life, at least in our number here, has occurred. We do always certainly wish to appreciate, as the Bible encourages us, to think about those things of a divine and spiritual character. Prayers are subject today, both this morning and tonight, as a part of our lesson. You probably already noticed on the wall, we're going to look at part two of that series uh, this evening. Your prayer life and mine, but the Bible has much to say about that. We continue to be thankful for our membership and visitors that have come our way this evening, and we hope all of us can be edified in those things touching the blessed Word of God. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, Turn with me as we look at a few matters touching the issue of prayer. This introductory slide will direct us and at least set us on our course for our study of the evening today. This morning we cast a spotlight on the perfection of Jesus and how that, that perfection included His prayer life. And isn't it so that if our Savior, of course, prayed often... If it's so that he prayed under the circumstances that we studied today, that it would be well for you and for me to also consider those five lessons we learned this morning. First of all, a matter of conviction. We should appreciate, should we not, that in order for our prayers to be successful, we should be convicted relative to the one to whom we pray. Convicted as to his existence, as to the fact he hears the prayers of his children, and that he's promised in his word that so long as those things are asked in accordance to his will, that he will answer in accordance to that which, which we have asked. Not only that, we came to see, did we not, that there was a matter of dedication. And that was, of course, touching the nature of your life and mine. Our life should be a dedicated one of service to Him, and a prayer then should simply be a manifestation of that conviction and that dedication and that trust. Number three was commitment. Prayer is something the Bible teaches involves commitment. Setting aside time and making sure that every day we speak to our Heavenly Father. And we cast upon Him the burdens and concerns of our heart and life. And we, of course, express appropriate thanksgiving to Him for what He has done and what He continues to do. Number four, as you can see on the top of that slide, was an issue touching the matter of weighty decisions. When we do encounter those moments and times in life when a great decision must be made, just like Jesus did, may we be quick to enter into prayer perhaps in solemnness, perhaps even over an extended period, so that we can seek the counsel and wisdom of God in light of His answer and direction. Fifthly and finally for the morning, we also looked about the spirit that was to be appropriate in prayer, namely a spirit of earnestness and ardency, a spirit such that we merely do not pray vain repetitions or that we pray simply to be heard by others, Jesus condemned in Matthew's chapters 5 and 6 those who would pray for that reason alone. Tonight, as we take up that study, let's come to point number 6. What else about the prayer life of Jesus could have such a great bearing upon your prayer life and mine? And so, number 6, 
a hard theme. Prayer for our enemies. You'll notice as you come to this sixth point with me, we easily appreciate the fact that Jesus, our Lord, had enemies. Although He never hurt anybody in terms of sin, and although He never was one who overtly challenged by way of brutality anything that would be of others, there were still people who didn't like Him very much. We all remember how that the religious leaders were so angry at Him. They were, in fact, so frustrated with Him, they could not cast aside His teaching. It was powerful and to the point. The religious leaders didn't like that. They wanted the people's applause for themselves. And thus, look at some of these examples. Jesus had enemies. In John chapter 8, the closing few verses of that chapter, we find on that occasion Jesus had just taught a masterful lesson. As He did so, though, there were those in the audience who were prepared in that city to cast up stones at Him. They were ready to kill Him. Might you and I remember again, it's not that He had stolen from them. It's not that He had, in fact, tried to kill them. The message they didn't like. You may remember just before that, the Lord made this statement. Before Abraham was, I am. They could easily see what Jesus was claiming. This man is claiming to be the Son of God. He is claiming to be great. He's claiming to be divine. That was more than they could bear. As such, they were ready to kill Him. Look at another example in Mark 12, verse 13. The Lord was a masterful teacher. That mastery, however, brings us to this observation. Again, there were those who, upon listening to Him, their purpose for listening to Jesus was this. They wanted to catch Him in His words. They weren't interested in learning what He had to say. They weren't interested in applying to their lives the truths that He expounded. They only wanted to hear Him so that they could catch Him by what He said and entrap Him. An enemy does that to you. Have you ever known of someone who listens to what you say, but they don't listen to learn? They don't listen, in fact, so they can be improved. They listen so they can use against you what you said. Sad that there are people like that. And yet, the Lord dealt with them. There were people who were His enemies. May we ask, what did Jesus teach relative to these enemies? You might quickly observe that the rest of the New Testament often references the existence of those that would be enemies. Paul had them. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse number 9, as he wrote to the church in Corinth, he made this rather remarkable observation. There is an open door, but there are many adversaries. Paul was thankful for the reality of the open door, namely opportunities whereby the gospel could be presented and souls could be presented the truth. But by the same token, Paul was well aware of the existence of adversaries. Those who not only were were uninterested, but made great efforts toward keeping others from hearing. Those adversaries and those opportunities bring us to reflect maybe briefly on the Old Testament. We remember that rather famous teaching known as the Lex Talionis. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That man has done me wrong, I'm going to do the same to him. That man stabbed me in the back, and I think at the first opportunity, I'll try to do the same to him, maybe under the banner of the Old Testament. 
one might wish that one could pursue things that way, but Jesus said, not for a minute. If we would be the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't do an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That law was nailed to the cross. We serve beneath a better one now. And this better law is one which marvelously asks us and demands of us that we pray for those enemies. That person that's out to get you or me, or that one who has invested effort to harm you or me. Jesus said, pray for them. Those that despitefully use you. Those that would be your enemy. I would call to your attention Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. It never ceases to be a challenging passage. I suppose there's an element in which it's ingrained within us. He's done me wrong and I'm going to hold a grudge. We can't do that. If we would be the servants of Jesus, we mustn't do that. Rather, I will invest my effort to pray for Him. I'll pray for what He did. I'll not hold a grudge against Him. I'll not be happy now what He did. Jesus didn't say we have to like what He did. But we have to desire that His soul would be saved. That by some means He would appreciate the error that He made, the hurtfulness that He brought about. And He would come to repent of that error. And so I pray for Him. Do you and I do that? In our prayers, may we be quick to think about those who would harm us, those who would hurt us, those who would wish evil upon us, those who would take advantage of us, those who would defraud us, and may we include them in our prayers. You'll notice as you come near the bottom of that slide, we have examples in the New Testament of individuals who were in dire circumstances indeed, Due to the willful and deliberate efforts of others. Consider Jesus in Luke 23. Here was a man hanging on a cross. Individuals had just cried out for his crucifixion. There were those Romans who had nailed nails into his hands and feet. And yet despite those efforts and despite the pain, he could look at and say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As often as we've reflected upon the amount of interior courage and the interior understanding that takes to wish upon one who would nail nails into your hand, to wish that he would have opportunity for forgiveness, that's magnificent. May you and I then have a desire, a yearning, a wish that you and I might have that mentality so that even in our prayers toward our enemies, we could pray that which would be in their best interest. Stephen's another example in the closing verses of Acts chapter 7. There, one more time, here was a preacher of the gospel, and the crowd did not like it. In fact, in verses 54 and following of that chapter, we read that they were so incessant against him that they picked up rocks and wished to kill him, and that they did. But yet his dying words were these, Father, as he looked upon the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as seeing the greatness of heaven, Father, forgive them. As Stephen made a prayer along that line, doesn't it remind us of the fortitude and the understanding that that requires? Point number six has then related to prayer for our enemies. Let's consider point number seven. The seventh point is this one. As you and I give thought to the reality of prayer, I mentioned at one point this morning, and we all understand it well, Life can so often bring its busyness, 
it can bring its overwhelming sense of demands. It can be tempting. In fact, it can be easy to slip into the habit of not praying very much. Maybe to go for days at a time. Maybe the principal times we might give thought to prayers when we're here. Maybe tomorrow or Tuesday, Thursday, Friday or Saturday. Maybe those are not frequent days for prayer. This particular point in this lesson is intended to set that idea aside. Prayer is always important. And it's always a needful thing. Let's use the Word of God to help us appreciate that idea. The importance of prayer seen like this. Would you not agree that to appreciate something is important? One of the ways that might be seen is this. If one is willing to take the time to instruct others relative to that activity, that would indicate that you perceive that activity to be vital, important, crucial, and so significant that it's worthy of instruction. The lesson text for this evening was Luke 11, verse 1. I would like us to reconsider that. A moment ago it was read in our hearing. Again it says, And it came to pass, as he was praying, that he refers to Jesus, in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Among observations that might be made about that text, one might be this. John the Immerser, John the Baptist, had taught his disciples to pray. In other words, John didn't merely leave it for them to figure out. He didn't leave it merely for their insight and wisdom to determine. He took the opportunity to instruct his disciples relative to features concerning prayer. That would indicate that John, that forerunner of Jesus, that John, that messenger of the Christ... He considered prayer sufficiently vital to render instruction concerning it. You'll notice what the request of Jesus' disciples were. Lord, teach us to pray. Did you notice again when they asked that? It came to pass as He was praying, when He ceased, those disciples watched Jesus pray. They heard the way He uttered His prayer. They heard the particulars and the features of it. And they apparently were so impressed, they were so reminded of the nature and character of prayer, they sought that moment to ask Jesus to teach them to pray. Wouldn't you like to have heard Jesus pray? Wouldn't you have liked to have been present and heard real, in reality the way in which He approached the Father? the details and the specifics and the way He uttered it. They were so moved by that that they asked Jesus to teach them to pray. May I suggest to you that that verse suggests to us that prayer is important. There's a right way to do it. There are things about it that might be done improperly. Parents, teach your youngsters how to pray. Let them hear you pray. Let them be present when you yourself offer prayer to God and let them listen to the manner in which you address certain things. Certain things are worthy of prayer and others are not. That little boy or girl, as they grow up in a place where they hear prayer, they certainly hear it in the worship services, but it's interesting and vital and useful for them as they hear Dad lead prayers at the house. 
as they hear the family involved themselves in prayer. You'll notice some additional thoughts might be these. In Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uttered what you and I often call the model prayer. Would you go back and revisit the particulars of that prayer? Beginning in verse number 8. I'm sorry, beginning in verse 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask Him. After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Now we'll continue that in just a moment, but notice with me how that begins. Jesus said, after this manner, pray ye. He's giving instruction. He's providing an understanding, a template, if you please. It's not that every element of prayer is included, but this is a pattern. Our Father which art in heaven... The first thing about prayer, we need to address the one to whom we're addressing that prayer. We need to make specific statement about the one to whom we're praying. Our Father which art in heaven. Jesus went on to say, hallowed be thy name. It's a good thing in our prayers. And that word hallow means to sanctify, to set apart, to proclaim as holy. We're not just talking to a, a common ordinary friend. We're not just talking to someone on our level. We are addressing the great being of the universe, the great Creator, our Father which art in heaven. How great, how sanctified, how hallowed is thy name. The Lord continues. Here He quickly makes mention, Thy kingdom come. In this moment prior to the establishment of the church, the Lord already had envisioned and in view the grandeur and greatness of the body of Christ. He prayed for its coming. Would it not be appropriate in light of the fact it has now come? You and I could include in our prayers, prayer for the grandeur and the continuation of the church until the end of time, that it may flourish, that it may grow, that it may be steadfast, true and strong and that her elders may be properly guided by scriptural insight and wisdom. Her preachers may stand foursquare always on the truth, and that she may stand steadfast and strong, uncompromising and unbending in the nature of truth. Jesus went on to say, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. The will of God is so keen, isn't it? Again, it would be a perfectly useful and right thing to include in our prayers, Heavenly Father, let Thy will be done and not mine. I want to pray that according to Your will. And if it is Your will to pray for this, that, or many other things, but always, Father, let Your will be done. We have in this prayer Jesus giving us instruction relative to that. He goes on, Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus gave us example. He gave us pattern and model for appropriate daily prayer and thanksgiving for the matters of the things God provides us. We'll have more to say about that on the slide that's now before you. This seems like the perfect time to include that particular description. Give us this day our daily bread. Haven't you often thought about what the Lord didn't say there? 
He didn't say, give us this week or weekly bread. Give us this month or monthly bread. Give us this year or yearly bread. Maybe one could think, well, to save a little time, I'll just pray in thanksgiving today for all the food of the coming month. Jesus didn't give us that template. We need to daily recognize that God sustains us. He provides for us. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17 It's thus appropriate every day to express a word of thanksgiving and petition that God will give us those physical things we need. You'll notice on this particular slide, Jesus gave us additional examples besides this. What about those occasions such as Mark 8, verse number 6, and Matthew 15, verses 36 and following? Those were occasions when miraculous matters took place. The Lord fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. And on the second occasion, He fed 4,000 men, again using seven loaves and a few fishes. But what did the Master do prior to distributing that miraculously provided food? He offered prayer of thanks for it. May you and I always be quick to offer a word of thanksgiving for the food we enjoy, for the provision and the bounty of it. Isn't it true that there are many in the world who suffer beneath the matter of poverty and hunger? They don't enjoy the bounty of what you and I have? May we always be thankful. For additional examples, consider 1 Corinthians 10, 26. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Paul quoted that Old Testament passage, and he used it to teach you and me vital matters relative to things including food and otherwise. The earth belongs to God. He allows you and me to be stewards of those bountiful blessings for a while. Let's thank Him for it. As another example of that in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, as Paul stood in the midst of these pagan peoples there in the city of Athens, he preached with directness and power with regard to the one they call the unknown God. And yet Paul said, In Him we live and move and have our very being. And He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. May we then have a heart of thanksgiving for the one who has so abundantly and richly blessed us. One final set of thoughts on that. Even your life and mine are held in His hand. Job knew that truth in Job 12 verse 10 and highlighted that it is the very matter of God Himself that grants us life and its blessing. Maybe you've known of individuals who were very ill and very sick. People who were... Sadly enough, the recipient of some very serious news from a medical professional. And yet, by some means in treatment, they were blessed marvelously to recover. Don't you hope that they thanked God for that? Maybe they're individuals who chose not to, or maybe over the course of time, they looked that great blessing sadly and took it for granted. You'll notice on the bottom of that slide, our attitude should be one of thanksgiving. In everything give thanks, Ephesians 5, verse 20. We notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 15 and following, that thanksgiving abounds in verse 18 to this degree, that in everything you and I should have a heart of thanksgiving. May we include thanksgiving in our prayers. 
not merely only asking God for something, but expressing thanksgiving to Him. As you and I close that slide, and we come to point number nine. Another thing we can certainly say about prayer as we use Jesus as our example would be this, to pray for one another. Doesn't your heart warm when you think about how often Jesus, as well as those New Testament Christians, prayed for each other? Let me direct your attention, if I might, to Luke 22, verse 32. In many ways, this is a sobering passage. You remember the scene with me. It was such that Jesus had already foretold to His disciples, Tonight, the shepherd will be smitten and the sheep will be scattered. Peter was quick to say, Lord, I'll never leave you. You remember what Jesus told him, don't you? Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you, but I've prayed for you. Can you imagine Jesus specifically calling Peter by name? Satan's wanting you, Peter, but I've prayed for you. If Jesus prayed for Peter and prayed for him to be strong, and prayed for him to withstand the fiery darts of the wicked one, and he prayed for Peter's maintenance of fidelity. Don't you think you and I need the prayers of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Those who petition God on our behalf? You and I sometimes, too, face some hard challenges and difficult struggles. Isn't it relieving to know that you've got brothers and sisters in Christ calling your name to God? Other people who are lifting your name before the God of heaven, praying that you will be strong, praying that you will know comfort, praying that peace will fill your heart, praying that you will withstand the integrity and the difficulty that Satan is hurling at you and that you will emerge victorious. That's powerful to know that there are people praying for you. And yet, In John 17, verses 1 and following, Jesus prayed for His apostles. Jesus was soon to be crucified. He was soon after that to ascend back to heaven. He prayed that those apostles would be strong and that they would be unified and that they would always remain faithful. He prayed that even though they were in the world, they wouldn't be of it. He prayed that they would lift high the banner of truth and that they would be the proper emissaries of faithfulness. But following that, Jesus turned His attention to every single believer in all of time. That includes you and me today. He prayed that we might be one in Christ. He prayed that we would appreciate He really was the Messiah. He prayed that we might understand very well what He died for and that we might never, ever forsake it. Jesus prayed for you and He prayed for me. Look at some of the additional examples on that slide. Paul was quick to pray for others. In Colossians 1 verses 9 and following, he prayed for the church in Colossae. And it would seem from the wording he frequently prayed for them. Not just once, not just every now and then. In addition to that example, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2, it would seem one more time he frequently mentioned the Thessalonian congregation in prayer. Do you and I frequently mention our congregation in prayer? What about our neighboring sister congregations? Are we quick to think about them and pray for their strength and their fidelity? 
Sometimes we know of challenges they face. Let's be quick to think about our brothers and our sisters in Christ. That slide proceeds onward to ask us to notice a command given to us. I think all of us are quick to reflect upon the strength of a commandment. Listen to this wording. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I think we'd all quickly notice there's a commandment. James, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, Pray one for another. May you and I be quick to do this. It leads to interior strength. It leads to fortitude. It leads to a reliance and an understanding that we are the family of God. Let's pray for each other. I might be quick to suggest that that means if you're having a particular burden in life, it isn't wrong. Share that with a close brother or sister in Christ and ask them to pray for you. I'm sure they'd be happy to do it. And not only that, to frequently do it. Did you notice the, one of the blessings that that yields? Pray one for another that ye may be healed. Healing comes with this. There's an essence in which a degree of strength, healing, sins are in fact overwhelmed and overcome as one turns to, to, to God. But not only that, those difficulties in life that often bring a sense of brokenness, that bring a sense of hurtfulness. When the world, it seems, has got you engulfed and surrounded, it means a lot. When there's a brother or sister in Christ calling unto God on your behalf, praying for your strength, may we be quick to do this. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the church, it was said in Daniel 2.44 that once it was established, it would never be destroyed. It's entirely right that we pray for its continuance and that its numbers would flourish. And we pray that precious souls would hear the gospel and that they would respond. We, of course, have several efforts, not only locally, but, yea, around the world here that we support. Things on radio and things on internet. Pray for the success of those things that the speaker would say the right thing to touch the hearts of those who would be in a position in a moment to react. It's a good thing to pray for things like that. As we pray for one another spiritually, let's come to Philippians 1 verse 4. Paul, as he thought about that church in Philippi, he was so earnest as he prayed for them and their successfulness and their faithfulness. We often in our prayers publicly here pray for this congregation. We pray for our elders. You're kind enough to pray for me as the preacher to preach and deliver the things from the Word of God. Let's continue to pray for the strength of our entire church, that each of us individually would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to quote 2 Peter 3.18, that we each would be such that our faith would grow exceedingly, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3. Those would be great things to pray for. Point number 10, as we close this slide and come to the next one. I thought it would be entirely right to close our sermon tonight with point number 10. A point wrapping it up with an idea about the power that's in prayer. 
we have highlighted many features of prayer today, to be sure. But yet it seemed to me entirely right to keep our eyes affixed on the power that's in prayer from this perspective. You and I know that we are surrounded by many people who don't think much about prayer. There are people who sojourn their life and they don't attend church services. And maybe these are co-workers and these are neighbors and these are friends and these are those you know from school. These are individuals you've seen in many different contexts. Many times they live a life where they really have no interest in prayer. They don't pray and they really don't understand why you do. And furthermore, if given an opportunity, they may in fact insult you because you do pray. They may voice some concerns perhaps like these. Why do you pray to a God you can't see? What proof do you have even exists? What's He ever done for you? Looks to me like people who don't ever pray are as well off as you are. they got nice houses, cars, boats, and jobs. They're doing as well as you. Why, why are you praying? Looks to me like it doesn't do much good. Beyond that, you might note this. Do you always get what you ask for? And you honestly would have to say, well, no, I don't always. And so they may with a smirk say, then why do you pray? It seems to me you don't have a lot of evidence or at least a lot of convicting proof that it's doing any good. May you and I never forget, there is an indescribably great, a colossally grand power in prayer. Would you consider some of these thoughts with me? In Psalm chapter 73, the very kinds of questions that I just raised are at least in principle presented there. David, that great psalmist of days gone by, he found himself in this predicament. The wicked people that he was watching around him, they were prospering. Well, there's a wicked man who gives no thought to God. His crops are doing fine. His family is successful. And David looked upon himself and said, Why are the wicked prospering, God? I'm sacrificing. I'm serving you. And yet my way is so hard. Trials seemingly are all about me. Why is this? When you arrive at verses 12 and following in that chapter, though, David found his answer. When I go to the sanctuary, then I know the answer. You see, all those things I've just mentioned, not getting what you ask for, these other features about trials and circumstances and cars and houses... The focus of all those things is this life. The fact is, the time is going to come when you and I will close our eyes in death. And then what? And then what? How did it turn out for the rich man and Lazarus? Oh, the rich man had everything here. Lazarus had nearly nothing. And yet, after death, the roles were entirely reversed. Lazarus found himself in the paradise, if you please, the comfort of Abraham's bosom, where the rich man, while he himself here had had it all, then he was in the torment of the life beyond this one. Isn't it amazing? Then prayer would do the rich man no good. May you and I never forget, though the world may tell us from the physical standpoint prayer looks powerless, you and I know that it is calling upon the grandeur and greatness of the God of heaven. 
Look with me at verses like these. Jesus demonstrated the power of prayer, didn't He? As our example, we have in Luke 9 verse 29, it was on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus Himself, we remember that He was transfigured before those apostles. Have you ever noticed what He was doing while He was transfigured? He was praying. He was praying. Don't you suppose that those apostles will be impressed? Here they were watching Jesus, their Master, praying, and while in prayer, He was transfigured. Would that not indicate the power inherent in prayer? You notice in James 5 verse 17, we have something said about Elijah. Here was a prophet of God. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And for three and a half years it didn't. And then he prayed that it would rain and it did. Is that not powerful? Here was that great man of old and his prayer was so much heard by the God of heaven that God responded identically and exactly to the matters concerning the lack of rain and, of course, the rainfall itself. It is in that very context we encounter James 5.16. Here's a promise. We noticed it a moment ago, but it's time to emphasize it now. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That indicates that prayer is powerful. It avails much. It's successful. It has within it the inherent nature and character of bringing about much for goodness. Isn't it fair to say in light of those things, prayer is powerful. The conclusion slide then is the next one. And as we conclude our lesson, let's do it like this. We've looked at ten attributes, ten things about prayer. The top one on this slide is a vital, vitally and significantly important matter. Let's mention it in passing and then the lesson will be yours. Prayer is a privilege for the children of God. God has not granted the promise that He will hear the prayers of sinners. He hasn't promised that He will respond to the prayers of those who are not His children. In John chapter 9, verse 31, we have this statement, We know that God heareth not sinners. All of these things we've learned today about prayer. Surely we would want to be a person who, in conviction and dedication, in assurance and confidence, could call upon the helping arms of one far greater than we. But the fact is, if I'm an alien sinner... Or if I'm a wayward child of God, God hasn't promised to hear my prayers. He hasn't promised to respond to them. You'll notice, for example, in Jeremiah 11, verse 11, even in the days of the Old Testament, God says, I'm not going to hear the prayers of those wayward Israelites. He told Jeremiah, don't pray for them. It's not going to do any good. Doesn't that speak volumes about you and me today? If I've got a heart like an adamant stone, a heart in rebellion against God, although I may once have been a faithful child of God, my prayers are not currently doing any good. That hastens in your heart and mind a desire to make things right. You'll notice in Zechariah 7 verse 13, that same principle was uttered. God said, I'm not going to have anything to do with those prayers of these wayward Israelites. Surely then in 1 Peter 3.12, we have the thrust of this idea stated like this. 
The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, and His ears are open to the prayers of His children. If you're a faithful child of God, thank God you can pray. And thank God He has given you the assurance He'll hear you. As long as you pray in accordance to His will, He's going to answer your prayer. But if you're not a faithful child of God, if you've walked away from Him, there's a problem. You don't have a direct action in regard to prayer to God. You need to make that right tonight. Come back to the loving arms of your Heavenly Father. Come back to the arms of the One who died for you. As you come to the close of this slide and the close of this lesson, I hope that we've each been encouraged today to think about prayer. How vital, how significant, how critical it is, and yet these principles we've learned about it. If tonight there would be anyone in the audience who would wish to respond in a public way to the gospel's call of invitation, we'd be honored to assist in that, in that obedience. As a wayward child of God, you need to come back to your first love. You need to repent of the sins in your life and confess them to God and beseech us to pray to God for you as we find in the pattern of Acts chapter 8, verses 20 and following. If, however, you've never become a Christian, there will never be a better night than this one. The fourth Sunday night in May, May the 28th, 2017, what a great day for you it could be. If we could assist in your response to the gospel, why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?